Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their family, their finances, and their futures. High Point University, the premier life skills university, focused on preparing students for the world as it is going to be. And Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. School is back in session and the summer is over or at least winding down. I'm Chris William and welcome again to the most widely watched and longest running program on Carolina business, policy and public affairs seen each week across North and South Carolina for more than 30 years. Thank you for supporting this dialogue. In a moment, we will unpack what the fall may look like for all of our communities, inflation, student debt forgiveness, what about a recession, et cetera, et cetera. And later on in this program, he is the new chancellor at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. He joins us and we will start right now. Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation upon which our communities improve and grow. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, health care, rural churches, and children's services. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, Sarah House from Wells Fargo, Tarek Tidwell of NC Ideas Black Entrepreneurship Council, and special guest, Kevin M. Guskowitz, Chancellor of UNC Chapel Hill. Well, happy fall. School is back in session or, or close enough. Sarah, nice to see you again. Uh, Tarek, welcome to the program. Sarah, let me start with you. The Biden administration just rolled out recently what had been threatened for a while, and that was this idea of reducing or forgiving student debt. And sure enough, there is now a plan in place for up to $20,000 if you're a Pell Grant recipient and $10,000 for uh, all others. So uh, let's frame this, Sarah. What, what, what's the cost benefit of just wiping out hundred, maybe hundreds of billions of student debt? Yeah, so I think first and foremost, we have to state that there's still a lot of uncertainty around this. So in terms of even how much of it will actually be able to, to take hold, not just the mechanics, but even some of the legality around it. So there are questions of that. But if we assume that this plan goes through, gets enacted, I mean, this could be meaningful relief for a lot of borrowers. So right now, there's about 43 million individuals who have some sort of student loan debt median balance is between 20 and $25,000. And so there are income limits to who is actually eligible for that. But for a lot of borrowers, especially your lower income borrowers, perhaps borrowers who didn't finish college, this could be a meaningful relief that really helps their, their overall balance sheet and wealth position where this debt isn't hanging around them. And so from that perspective, it, it could be beneficial from a longer term spend, uh, spending standpoint, where um, particularly as the moratorium is now set to end in, uh, in, in December, start, so payments begin in January, um, that could help in, in some ways kind of ease that, um, ease the hit to, to spending that we see next year from that moratorium ending. Uh, let me do a quick follow-up, and Tarek, I promise I'm going to give you a chance to wait in on that. Uh, Sarah, is is the forgiveness of debt uh, strictly by the numbers? It is inflationary or deflationary? 
So I think on net, what we're looking at is uh, probably if again, if this goes through and, and it's enacted as it's been laid out, I think it's it's probably going to be modestly inflationary where essentially households will have more money to spend on current purchases whether they're pa- versus their past purchase of education. So I think when when we look at um, not just the forgiveness, but there's talk of reducing the percent of uh, discretionary income that uh, under the income-based repayment plans, I mean, overall, this frees up cash and, and money to be spent in other areas of the economy. So I think on on net, it is somewhat inflationary, but an environment of 8.5% inflation, I'm, I'm not sure it's really going to change change the story or change the trajectory of inflation. Tarek, how does this, when you factor in how Sarah just described it statistically and, and, and almost academically about this, um, and you, you, as we all know, the, the, the partisan, uh, uh, just call it uh, opposition for and against this type of forgiveness, uh, is, is this on net, is this going to be a good thing? Is, and I'm talking about student debt forgiveness. Yes, this is definitely going to be a, a good thing. I mean, one of the things that I see this playing out, which is many folks who want to start businesses can't. And one of the most one of the most prohibiting factors has been student debt. So we look at low income uh, entrepreneurs; their their ability to launch a business has been hindered because of the fact that they have a debt. So this is going to have a net positive with maybe even more folks who are looking to launch a business and create some additional tax revenue for those different economies. So this is going to have a different opportunity and, and impact in those different communities as they launch their businesses. And I know you I know you're not insensitive and I'm putting words in your mouth. But how how do you answer critics that say, well, uh, you know, I should have waited six more months and I could have wiped out my debt? Or why is this not fair when I had paid my debt or I went to the GI Bill and I gave my uh, uh, some service to the country? I mean, how do all these arguments against the idea, do they carry weight? Is there is there some semblance of, 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 of an argument against it? Oh, definitely. There's definitely some legitimacy on both sides related to, you know, I've, I've paid my debt in full. You should pay yours. Right. Sure. So I think the matter is, is just find out what's fair and what's just. And I think that's going to be the hardest part, which is find out what's fair, and what's just. And it may show up in other different areas, which may mean for folks who may own uh, mortgages or homes, this may show up where there may be policies impacted or, or introduced that may support those different folks who may be coming from different uh, perspectives. Sarah, let's uh, look at the broader economy. Not surprising. uh, Here we are on the eve of not just Jackson Hole, but what the Fed is going to be doing about inflation. Uh, Broader, when you look at the Carolinas, when you look at the broad economy of the United States, what is your biggest concern? Is it inflation? Is it rising interest rates? Is it debt levels? What do you look at and say, yeah, but this is really the thing that we ought to be watching? I I think it is inflation right now, given that we're still seeing prices rise at roughly the fastest pace in 40 years. And that's making it so difficult on households, on businesses to plan to, you know, they're having to spend more time on thinking about their purchases decisions. So for businesses, do I make this investment? Am I going to get the return if I'm not going to be able necessarily to pass on my costs as as much? Um, For households, it's a matter of, okay, so where, you know, can I afford to buy this? Where can I afford to buy it? That's time that they could be spending on more productive (laughs) endeavors. And so I think that is a huge issue hanging over the economy. And it's the number one focus of the Fed. And so that does lead to interest rates becoming uh, a weight on on the economy as the Fed does try to actively slow growth to rein that inflation in. So we get stability where we can plan and grow in a more sustainable way. Tarek, what do you think? Well, I mean, there's there's a lot where, you know, 
when I think about small business, I think about entrepreneurs, I think about folks who are looking, even from the investor perspective, which is we're starting to see investors pull back. So that means that their ability or willingness to invest is actually becoming a little bit lower, where folks are thinking about, well, I'm starting a business, but I'm going to have, am I going to be able to have access to capital? Um, so this is really hurting some folks when they're thinking about business, thinking about starting up or thinking about investments. You're, you're looking at the return, the opportunity, and how long it, how, how long you're going to uh, take before you get that return. And is it going to be um, much more you know mitigated as much with all the different inflationary costs? So in your world, Tarek, and you know mm -hmm. a little bit of something about innovation, uh, not just through NCIDEA, but other things. Are you seeing uh, investors, uh, and I'm, I'm using that term broadly, are you seeing folks that are building businesses, investing in businesses, are they becoming reticent about spending, making CapEx at this point? Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, you're always going to be sensitive to capital. I mean, one of the most things is runaway. In fact, some investors are, are telling some of their own entrepreneurs saying, listen, you may need to extend your runway because we will not be providing you a bailout should you should you have any kind of indication that your business is not going to be working. So I think this is going to be something for investors that are looking, say, we're going to wait until Q3 of next year to make any kind of investments. And then if you're looking to have an exit of your business or say, we're going to have a sale of this business in the next year, we want to make sure that our investors are going to get a, a good return based upon that kind of capital that was deployed. So um, it, it's impacting everyone. Okay, um, just, a, just a reminder, I heard a notification. <laughs> I mean, how could you not hear that notification? Uh, whoever has that on your computer, and I know it's not me, make sure you silence that, please. It's, it's, it is a little overbearing. Sarah, let me come back to you on something. So housing, commercial real estate. Uh, these, these, both of these loom very large in this economy, and, and all of us, if you own a home, uh, it'd be hard pressed to think that you haven't at least gained something somewhere at some market. Um, uh, speaking to some commercial real estate people recently about urban core vacancy rates, they are climbing in, and I know specifically to Charlotte because I just recently had a conversation offline with a commercial real estate person who said uptown vacancy rate in, in the Carolina's largest city was around 20%. And he went on to say, yeah, but the whisper rate is about 40%. And I had to ask him to repeat that. And what that means, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, is that's what people are afraid of because not just is the current vacancy rate high, but with whatever the new working model is and with ever the new capacity of building that we've all been seeing, that a vacancy rate could be much higher than what the current posted rates. Number one, do you agree with that? And number two, what is the risk for those type of high vacancy rates? Well, I think what we've seen is if you look at the uh, back to work barometer, so just the number of badge swipes that, that we're seeing in uh, office space. So, you know, across most metro areas, it's it's only roughly 50% of what it was before COVID. So you can see that under this new model that businesses don't necessarily need the same amount of space, especially if you can share some of that space, depending on, you know, how, depending on when your workers are, are coming in. So I think as we have now, nationally at least seen net absorption um, continue to rise the, the past couple quarters. It's nowhere near what we were seeing before. And that's because I think you do have a lot of businesses rethinking their footprint 
And as office leases come back up for renewal, that you do have this longer term drag from the pandemic where, look, that space was was still under contract even, even during the worst of, of the pandemic, but we're in a different environment, right? And so that's going to potentially keep, um, keep the vacancy rate elevated, perhaps even sending it higher. And of course, we also have a lot of new office construction in, in Uptown Charlotte as well, contributing to that dynamic as well. And I know there are a lot of things on this in about 20 seconds, Sarah. Uh, how long of a tail do you think that kind, how long would it take to have that type of vacancy rate absorbed in any market? And I don't mean just Charlotte, but any urban core here. I mean, I think it depends where we land on work from work from home and, and the hybrid environment. In many ways, it's still kind of untested of what's the longer term benefits. You know, does it actually help productivity? So, I think the jury's still out. Where you know, right now, there's a lot of a um, lot of push for it from from workers, but come the next downturn, where workers maybe don't have as much sway, businesses might have a little bit more pull, and you might see more need for office space if, if that's the direction businesses want to go. Our guest is a nationally recognized expert on sports related concussions. You remember the movie uh, a few years ago with Will Smith about concussions. Our guest knows something about that, but that's not why he's here. However, that training might come in handy. He is the chancellor, the relatively new sheriff in town at UNC Chapel Hill. We are glad to have the Honorable Chancellor Kevin Guskowitz. Chancellor, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, so, Chancellor, here we are, beginning of a new academic season. It seems that the commencement of this new season is now post-pandemic. Post Do you feel like it's normal? And what does normal look like now on a college campus? Well, it's a lot closer than, uh, to normal than we've had the past few years. We're really starting this semester in an exciting place, uh, certainly different from where we've been the past few years. And we've learned a lot from this COVID experience and how to offer quality uh, in-person uh, learning and conducting our research, uh, we've, we've had to adapt. And I think that's part of what a great global public research university does that teaches society how to adapt. And uh, I'm proud of where we are. Uh, we've learned a lot over these past few years, but I think we've come out of this uh, experience stronger and more resilient. Is, is it, do you get a sense that the student body and the faculty, that the morale is where it was two and a half years ago? Oh, it's even better, I would say. I think some of it's just, uh, you know, they realize what we've been craving. And uh, as I look out my window at the old well here, uh, just a lot of uh, smiling faces on campus uh, and uh, a lot of happy people making up for some lost time. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, out and about on campus over the past two or three weeks and welcoming students back. And, uh, you know, that, that last year's senior class, and I had a son in that class, uh, they missed, you know, about half of their college experience due to this, uh, at least uh, in the normal way that it should have been experienced. And so I'm, I'm reassuring everybody that we're going to make up for lost time and uh, it's going to be a great year. Mm -hmm. Terry? Great, great to have you, uh, Chancellor. I'm just curious, you know, with so much um, happening within higher education, college affordability, um, how should universities be looking at how to make their education more affordable? Well, one of the things I'm really proud of at Carolina is that we've been, um, you know, we've, we've had flat tuition for six consecutive years at Carolina. My guess is that we'll have probably flat tuition again this coming year. Uh, we'll be working on some of those decisions here alongside our UNC system colleagues and the Board of Governors uh, over the next several months. Uh, but, um, you know, we have uh, for over two decades now been ranked uh, as best value uh, among publics um, across the country at Carolina. 
very proud of that. Uh, we, we've done our best to keep student fees as low as possible. Uh, we're certainly entering a, a period here where we're going to see the effects of inflation, though the, the sort of unprecedented inflation that we've seen uh, over these past uh, two quarters and what the impact that that may have. But, uh, but we're committed to this. It's part of our charter uh, at Carolina to uh, provide uh, quality, high quality education and to be as affordable as possible. Our Carolina Covenant program uh, allows students to graduate from Carolina uh, as debt free as possible. It's an incredible program. Nearly 20% of all of our undergrad students in Carolina come through that Carolina Covenant program. Um, and so, um, you know, these are students who come from, uh, you know, their first gen students, uh, students that come from families with uh, median incomes less than $30,000 for a family of four, and they graduate pretty much debt-free. And we're, we're proud of that. Our capital campaigns allowed to, us to raise money to help uh, ensure uh, that uh, affordability. Sarah. Yeah, so you touched on this briefly and in terms of, I mean, you guys are facing rising costs too. So we think so much about the inflation environment right now, and there's so much talk about supply chains, how much goods consumers are buying, but you know, even a service provider like you guys providing the service of education has has goods that factor into that that input cost, but also of course we're facing a very tight labor market. So you can talk a little bit about how, how your input costs have, have gone up and how the inflation we're seeing right now isn't necessarily just a goods phenomenon. But we're worried about it. I mean, we're seeing uh, it's, uh, and that's why I mentioned with student fees, I think that we're gonna be reevaluating, uh, you know, the, the cost of, essentially the cost of doing business. And so those services that fees provide, uh, whether that's a student health fee, whether that's for uh, services in our campus recreation facilities or, um, you know any of the clubs and organizations and so we we have to uh, there's that increasing cost uh comes at an expense to someone and so we're doing the best we can to keep fee student fees low uh but um uh I, again we're doing everything that we can we're very fortunate to be uh in in the coming down the home stretch of a very successful capital campaign a seven-year campaign and uh proud that we're, we're getting close to a $5 billion, we've exceeded our goal, uh, but uh, the, we're, we're raising a billion dollars uh, towards student aid and scholarship that will help offset some of that inflation. But um, we're gonna have to make some adjustments downstream. Chancellor, you talked about student debt and, and, and certainly a lot to be proud of at UNC Chapel Hill around the best value. Uh, Money Magazine, of course, just came out with another list and, and Chapel Hill was ra ranked number two as best value and highest quality, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, student debt. Obviously, the Biden administration just uh, is released this idea of student loan forgiveness um, with just straight up. How do you feel as a as a parent? who has kids in the system or has had kids in the system, and certainly what you do in your day job, should we be canceling student debt? Is there another way to think about this? Should it be a larger amount of debt? Should it be less? How does all this kind of flesh out for you? I think there something needed to be done. And, and I, you know, what uh, sort of came out earlier this week, uh, in, in my opinion, I, I think it was a middle the road approach. Uh, I will see again. I think it's going to be one of the downstream effects. There's a, as as you've seen, it, that those dollars add up to a lot. Where's that going to, you know, sort of uh, come from? And and I do think that um, uh, we'll we'll have to look at that. We you know we have a one of only two public institutions in the country that are fully uh, uh, sort of need blind uh, in our admissions process. So we admit our students. Um, 
and uh, based on their merit, uh, and uh, and then we figure out how to help get them here. You know, we 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 let we learn after the fact after they decided to come what it's going to you know what sort of student aid financial uh, support they need, and uh, our our hope is we can continue to do that. But I think this this potentially is uh, will we'll challenge that. I think at many universities, uh, so so we'll see. Mm -hmm. Okay, Tarek, please. Let's switch a little bit, uh, change conversation a little bit. I um, mean, universities have been engines for innovation and engines for entrepreneurship. Um, as we look at this in terms of with the new passing of like National Science Foundation, the Science and Chips Act, uh, how should universities position themselves to enabling more innovation entrepreneurship uh, within their community? Well, I love this question because this is something that we're really proud of. Uh, in March of 2021, we launched the Carolina Economic Development uh, Strategy uh, to position us to really to act as a sort of a catalyst to retain and attract and grow more innovation and oriented companies uh, and talent here to Chapel Hill uh, and, and to our campus. Uh, we've got world-class researchers. We just brought in $1.2 billion uh, this past year alone in research. and. Uh, Industry wants to be rubbing elbows, wants to be close on campuses uh, like ours uh, to, to try to learn from one another and to help, uh, hopefully, to help commercialize that research. So uh, we recognize our role as uh, Chapel Hill's largest employer, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, we work with our alumni, our business and research partners to help successfully implement uh, this new strategy. I've got a new downtown uh, economic development council. and. Uh, we're building an innovation hub uh, that will connect uh, the downtown up right up through to our campus. A lot of our work is in the biomedical uh, area. Uh, that 1.2 billion, probably half of it comes from biomedical research, and that innovation corridor will extend right through from downtown up through the main part of campus and over to the medical school and, and the world-class scientists we have on that side of campus. So I'm excited about it, and uh, I think it is a responsibility, and we want Chapel Hill and, and UNC Chapel Hill to be uh, a uh, the anchor institution for driving uh, the economy of this region, and we will and we'll do it. Mm -hmm. Sarah, you got about two minutes. So one question I have is, you know, we're looking at a historically tight labor market. So what are you hearing from employers that the university works with in terms of you know, what they're looking for from 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 you in terms of pipeline, but also just you know what what are the skills that you're hearing from employers that are most in demand that you're trying to get your students ready for? Yeah, so we are right now in the process of uh, sort of revamping, reimagining our career services uh, division uh, to try to better understand that labor market. Uh, better, you know, internships have become so important uh, right now. Of our, um, we have about nineteen, almost twenty thousand undergraduates now uh, at Carolina, and and my goal is that. Uh, the vast majority of those 20,000 students um, get an internship experience because that's where the, they, they learn, you know, see those career paths and options. Um, we're reworking, uh, as I said, uh, career services. But I also want to emphasize we're trying to do everything to retain our top talent here on campus. So it's, you know, uh, sort of upward mobility and creating those uh, sight lines for, for new career options. Um, for our students is one of our top priorities, but also uh, creating upward opportunities for upward mobility of our top talented staff and faculty here at Carolina is a priority because industry is coming in, as you know, and there's a lot of opportunity out there beyond our campus, and uh, we don't want to lose that top talent. Mm 
Chancellor, we've got we got about two minutes left. Uh, I know somewhere in the description of what the chancellor's job is on any of you or your contemporaries uh, across the UNC system is probably not political traffic cop, but that is a reality of the job. I, and, and, and Chapel Hill is a unique uh, animal. Uh, it is probably the uh, historic public university that is probably right in the middle of some uh, very oppositional idea, uh, ideological polarization. You've got a fairly liberal school. You've got a fairly conservative general assembly. I'm not asking you to take sides, but how do you manage through, there's a group called the Carolina uh, Coalition for Carolina, which you know are faculty, but how do you, how do you manage a public dialogue about ideological things that is fair to both sides and that, and that you move forward as a school and as an academic institution. How do you do that? Yeah, I mean, this is what great global public research universities do, like UNC Chapel Hill. Our role, uh, Chris, should not be to promote uh, a political agenda, uh, but to promote academic freedom and uh, expression uh, that, that must be front and center. And uh, my and I've been in a lot of conversations, as you can imagine, over the past five or six weeks uh, about this. And uh, our leadership team is going to continue to discuss how we fulfill that responsibility uh, to be a place where ideas and opinions are argued and tested and freely expressed. And uh, at times, as I, I think there needs, there's always going to be a, a, a healthy tension uh, on the campus of a, you know, of a, of a leading global public research university like ours. We don't shy and run away from controversial topics. We we have world class faculty that study these issues. But as I said in the campus message a few weeks ago, uh, we. And, and I'm going to, you know, our board of trustees voted to approve a, a resolution reaffirming our commitment uh, to academic freedom and emphasizing our university's. Uh, respect for for free inquiry and, and the obligation to cherish a diversity of viewpoints and so uh, that's what i said in that message is reaffirming our commitment to this uh, will be that place that will help uh, you know we'll have civil discourse we have a new relatively new program for public discourse uh, just went to an event they held last evening and uh and i think it's taken a, a really it's taken life on our campus, and I think it has a real strong presence and will make a difference in helping to inform policymakers um, and, and probably bring some people to the middle on some of these issues. Okay. All right. Chancellor, th thank you for joining us. Uh, please do come back. I know there are a lot of things we didn't unpack. And uh, by the way, best of luck going forward with Mac Brown and the football team because, you know, app is not a rollover. So good luck. Oh, let me tell you. Uh, in that is going to be a great weekend over there. Uh, I hope we come home with a W. But yeah, good, uh, good, luck. <laughs> good luck. Good uh, luck. Chancellor, thank you very much. Uh, Tara, good to see you. Please come back. Sarah, always nice to have you. Until next week, I am Chris William. Happy weekend. Good night. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by High Point University, Martin Marietta, Colonial Life, The Duke Endowment, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you.